the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Time now for the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. Well, on the program today, a real treat as we are joined by the senior pastor of North Creek Church in Walnut Creek and speaker on Walk Through the Word, heard Monday through Friday at 4.30 p.m. on KFAX. A delight to have with us back microphone side, Pastor Kent Dresdo. And Dr. Dresdo, good to see you again. Thank you for spending some time with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. We've been getting good reports about Walk Through the Word, and uh, again, delight to have you on board. Give us a little bit of a sense for perhaps listeners that are brand new and and wondering what your new program is all about, kind of the, the overall thrust of the message that you're hoping to convey to listeners each day. Yeah, you bet, Craig. Sure. Really, the essence of the program and our heart for it would be exactly what's stated in the title of the program. We just want to be able to provide a venue for folks to be able to walk with us through the word. That's what we do as a church. That's what we love as a church family, church body, is just having the the privilege of opening God's word and hearing God speak to us, lead us, guide us, love us, shepherd us in that way. And I, I really hope, Craig, that that what we want to be about as a local church is what ends up kind of being communicated to listeners all over the Bay Area, that we would love to invite them to walk with us through the word of God and and see how it is that we might be able to love the Lord Jesus Christ with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength more and more. And then how that translates straight into life practically to love our neighbor, to love each other uh, more and more and more. So that's really the essence of, I hope, what we're trying to do with the radio broadcast, as well as what we're trying to do, I know, on the local church side, too. Is your sense the desire to hopefully help people better understand the Word and its daily application so that it kind of moves from being, uh, how should I put this politely, the decoration on the coffee table or something that we occasionally will quote from if we want to impress our friends or seem to be super spiritual. But I think there's a sense that maybe it's like Dad on Christmas morning. You're opening the gifts, and here comes the new fancy gadget that you've bought your son or daughter, so Dad's going to be the hero and assemble it together. The first thing we do is we toss aside the directions, <laughs> take out the screwdriver, and before you know it, by the time we're done, we either have many parts left over or it doesn't work. And I'm wondering yes. if there are a lot of believers that take the same approach to life, that, well... There's cognizant acknowledgement of Scripture. The sense of seeing it as sort of the the day-to-day user's manual for getting through life and marriage and raising families and all of that, that sadly, it's just that coffee table decoration that I mentioned a moment ago. Yeah, that's right, Craig. And that's really our desire is to have folks be able to engage with God's Word in a way that they can understand for themselves and then be able to apply for themselves, right? And um, and none of us are meant to live in a vacuum. We're, we're meant to live in fellowship with one another and and help each other understand God's Word more and what God would want from our lives and, and how it is that we can love and serve Him uh, better. And none of us are in a place where we've arrived, you know, in our Christian life and walk. And so, uh, well, hopefully none of us think that, right? And so we just want to be able to to join people with where the Lord has them, in, in their life, understanding that all of us have challenges, all of us have struggles and, and trials, difficulties, strains. Um, we're battling with our flesh and sin. I get that. And then look to God, right? Look to God and say, God, how how is it that we can navigate through life with what you've presented to us in a way that honors you in a way that really gives joy to us, right? I mean, walking um, in the word gives joy uh, as well as life. And so, man, I want to make sure we, we make that a focus too. I hope that comes through that there, yes, the Lord has um, marked out a path for us practically, but that can be pursued with joy and, um, and in a way that's life giving, not life draining. And so praise the Lord for the, for the joy that comes from the word too, even as we're trying to figure out how to, like you said, with all that God has presented to us in our life, uh, marriages, families with kids, jobs that seem like there's challenges every day. Um, 
How do we live for the Lord? And how do we love the Lord in the midst of all that? Yeah, what a what a great pursuit, right? What a joy to pursue that together and to pursue Christ together and all that. That's really what we're trying to have folks understand as they plug into the program day by day, week by week, month by month. Let me ask a tough question here. Um, do you see in, in your ministry and the time that you spend with parishioners and, and, and engaged in, of course, preaching from the pulpit and so forth, a, a correlation between the struggles that individuals go through, the problems that they have, and perhaps a direct correlation to a, le- a level of um, biblical illiteracy in their life? And I'm <laughs> trying to choose my words wisely here because I don't want to offend anybody. But I just have to wonder, you know, sometimes we hear people make ridiculous pronouncements or statements, even those oftentimes in the public arena that will make proclamations about being Christians or or even identifying as evangelicals. And then you see some of their behavior and the words out of their mouths, and you think there seems to be a fundamental disconnect here. And I just wonder overall, how much of this is directly relatable to a degree of biblical illiteracy? Yeah. Oh, I think that's one of the one of the fundamental reasons why people are so confused today with the the pace of things coming at uh god's people and and really the pace of things that are coming at people just in general today it's it's a bit of a blur right it's i don't know that anybody would say that they have a a ton of clarity with all the different just blurring issues coming at us uh from all angles which is why we do need to get back to the simple truth of the scripture right there is the Bible says that there's clarity and simplicity in the sufficiency of itself to, to bring um, salvation to the soul and sanctification to the believer. And, and really viewed that way, we can unclutter uh, our lives and just live a simple, God-pleasing, joy-filled life uh, for Christ. And so, yeah, I think you're right. How do we move the Bible off of the coffee table and and into people's minds and hearts and lives uh, it's by helping them see the simplicity and the clarity and the life transforming power of the word of God. And when they, when they, when they catch that for themselves, when they see that for themselves, um, I think that that begins to build its own momentum. Now, now the word of God, like Proverbs two says, like I just read yesterday in my own time in the word that God's word becomes a treasure. It's a treasure. And we seek after it with all of our heart. And that's when we see the the word do the work right by the spirit's power to transform a life. And, and Craig, would you say that the uncluttering, another word for that biblically would be just, it brings peace. It brings peace. Uh, the Holy spirit brings peace as he brings comfort to us through the word. And, um, and man, do we need that in today's day and age? That's just so confused and so supercharged with animus and conflict, right? Well, and, and when the enemy is coming at you with a fire hose of lies and confusion and, and, you know, really, none of this is a surprise. It it all goes back to kind of a John ten ten thing. He's he's out to to seek like a roaring lion, whom he may devour and destroy. I mean, that's the enemy's stated purpose. And I and I and I think maybe one of the bigger challenges that a lot of believers have in that struggle, as the enemy comes at you with that fire hose of confusion and doubt and 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 all of that, um, is maybe Scripture becomes for a lot of people the fallback position, meaning where we just got the news that a spouse has been diagnosed with cancer, that a child is dealing with a a, a drug abuse problem, whatever calamity it might be, and we go to that fallback position of going to the Word or going to pray instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to use the Word to lead us every day, it's the fallback position. And I wonder if that winds up complicating things and allows maybe the doorway for the enemy to cast doubt and take advantage of us because we have not study to show ourselves approved. Do you think that's true? For sure. For sure. Yeah. The the normal operation of the word of God in the life of the believer is that we feed on the word, right? Um, his, the, his words are the words of life. They give life to us, eternal life, uh, but also spiritual vitality. And so when we don't feed on the word of God for ourselves, we starve ourselves. And then a crisis hits, Craig, of any different kind of magnitude, or even an attack comes from the world or from the enemy, and all of a sudden, we, we don't have the spiritual strength or stamina to persevere under trial, right? So so what we like to tell our folks is the time to, to feed on God's word is like you would in any given diet. You just, 
you feed slowly over time, you change your diet slowly over time. And that intake is going to lead to strength, which can then be spent in times of duress or trial or, or struggle or strain. And so <clears throat> it also helps us to fight temptation in our own flesh to sin. Uh, and so, man, praise the Lord that, that the truth is hidden in our hearts so that we might not sin against the Lord. And so there is so much strength to be had, but you're right, Craig, the time to get that strength is not in the crisis necessarily, although God in his mercy gives us supernatural grace uh, to, to sustain ourselves in trial. But, but the normal operation of the word is that we feed, feed, feed on it to be made strong for what God has waiting for us and what we walk ourselves into. And I think that strength is not only important as we kind of look at the example of the Word being the bread of life, and we know that, that bread and food gives us energy and sustains us and, and allows us to literally live. And I think yep. that there is a, a an obvious example there in how the Word then sustains us and gives us energy to live spiritually. But I think right. the other issue that oftentimes is getting lost, and, and we see this particularly in a growing level within Christianity, particularly in the West, where there's technology that's demanding our attention and so many things that the enemy can use to distract us. And I think the problem is that oftentimes we find people that know God, or more accurately put, know of God, but yeah. don't necessarily know God. And yes. that, that's a, that's a, a, a quandrum that, that many face that perhaps do so unawares, meaning they go to church on Sunday, they they certainly acknowledge God's existence. If you ask them a thing or two, they can tell you a little bit about God, but not in an intimate way, meaning they know of him, but don't know him. And I I wonder if also that goes back to this, this core issue of biblical illiteracy. Yeah, correct. Yeah, because if you... The, the good news is um, that the, the scriptures point us to a person, right? They point us to the Lord and they point us specifically to Christ. And so in him is life. Um, and that life was the light of men, right? John one talks about that. Um, and so this is eternal life. John 17, that we, that, that we might know God and know his son whom he sent. So it's about relationship, right? Um, the gospel is pointing us to a personal relationship with Christ as we turn away from ourselves and our sin. And as we turn to the living God, turn to Christ and put our trust in him, we're putting our trust in a person and not just a set of rules in the Bible, but the Bible pointing us to that relationship. And, um, and, and he becomes then, as you know, Craig, and the Psalms just explode this. He becomes our rock and our refuge and our strength, our stronghold, our fortress, um, and all that we need. And so uh, with the word pointing us to the Lord, that's where we find our strength is in that relationship uh, with him. And that's good news, right? Because we live in an isolated world too, not just a biblically illiterate world, but we live in a, in, in a relationally isolated world now, right? With all of the social media making us lonelier and lonelier and more and more isolated, uh, there's just a greater need for us to be taking people back to God's word, to, to take them to the Lord Jesus Christ, the good shepherd of their souls. So I think you're right, Craig, to connect. The, the rise of biblical illiteracy has, has led to a rise of uh, spiritual isolation. And, uh, and, and those can feed on, on each other in really, um, in really harmful ways. But that's where we got to take people back to the good news, right, of the gospel. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's interesting because it seems as if, as if in some ways— uh, the pandemic helped to exacerbate that. I hear from oh, yeah. pastors all over the Bay Area and the country that say, yeah, we're, we're not seeing the numbers that we used to see. And I think a lot of it is that people have gotten comfortable. And I, I want to be cautious here. I've I've spent my entire career very intimately involved with technology, even as we're using <laughs> technology to carry on this conversation right now. And I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily a bad thing, but I think it also can create a false sense of, sense of intimacy. For example, we all know the person who generally tends to be kind of isolated, doesn't have a large group of friends, and yet if you go to their Facebook page, they seemingly have 10,000 friends, and you think, why doesn't that square with the person that I know, right? Right, yeah. And, and I think we've seen, even as people have learned to kind of hide behind the mask of texting 
and email. Sometimes kids today don't even know how to carry on a conversation, uh, largely because the technology, while we think in some fashions, has brought us together, but I have to think that there's also a degree to which it's created a sense of false intimacy, and therefore people become more isolated. They don't have the kind of... um, tactile, relational, iron sharpens iron experience. And and I think that's certainly true uh, when it comes to the church. You know, you you think that you can, like a sponge, sit at home and absorb it. And I'm not suggesting that there's not some benefits to hearing it on the radio, through the internet or whatever. But when the word says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves... And after all, let's face it, the, the whole core message of, of the gospel is about relationship. God's right. desire to be in, in, in relationship with us and for us to be reconciled unto him. If yeah. God puts that much emphasis on relationship, then I think we should also pay some attention to that too, shouldn't we? Yeah, man. Amen. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah, that in that same passage, Hebrews 10, um, the author goes on to say we need to be considerate of how we spur one another on to love and good deeds. And that happens in the context of gathering together. And Paul hits on that same theme in first Corinthians. When you come together as a church in first Corinthians 10, 11, 12, 13. And by the way, all of the uh, emphasis of loving um, of love being fleshed out in the church in chapter 13 of first Corinthians happens in the context of the church gathered. And so, yeah, Craig, it's, it's true for all the benefits of technology. And I, I'm with you. I'm a major believer in technology. And, and in fact, sometimes I've kind of gotten ribbed for my, for my embracing of technology. I just love it. I love God's grace to us, common grace to us in, in the gift of being able to connect with people in ways that no other generation history could have imagined, right? What a blessing. So I'm not downplaying it. I am saying that the, the potential danger of it is that we use that as a substitute for that the, the more fruitful and fundamental work of being together personally and interpersonally. And so that sharpening that you mentioned, that can happen a little bit online or even maybe moderately online, but we know what happens online. When, when someone really presses you, you just turn them off, mm-hmm. right? You just, you just block them, defriend them. Yeah. That's that. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. It's easy. Right. Yeah. But that's hard to do relationally. And so the sharpening, the good, solid sharpening, the exhortation work, some of the some of the the more fruitful, but sometimes more difficult relational work um, that is done in the context of people being together in, in, in the local church. And so and then the real joy, the deep seated joys of walking with people personally through uh, amazing victories in the Christian life, you know, just mountaintop experiences. Those are those are two entered into most deeply, most substantially interpersonally. And so, you know, the, 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 the harder parts of relationship get blunted a little bit online and the, the just majestic soaring victories of, of, of the Christian life are enjoyed best interpersonally and aren't quite the same online. And so isn't that why I think the Lord's wisdom, he just calls us to gather and, um, and to gather together. There's a sweetness there. And plus two, one last thing, we can typically choose the people we choose to align with online more. Um, when you go to church, you don't get to choose the God's choosing, right? He's bringing together the people that he wants to assemble. And so we need to make it it's a little bit harder and a little bit sweeter to, to love uh, and to serve people that you didn't handpick yourself, um, but rather God did. And so I just am grateful for, for what God's given to us online, Craig. I mean, look at the relationship that's forged here uh, with KFAX and, and North Creek. Praise the Lord for that. But then look at the benefits of the local church, too. And um, I think both are, are fruitful in different ways. Absolutely. And again, you know, technology can be a bridge or it can be a wall. It just depends on how we use yeah, that's it. That's great. And, you know, the, the other thought that comes to mind is we look at sort of the, the, the broader mandate uh, to go and be disciples and make disciples. That's really complicated when you're trying to do it, you know, in the fortress of your home with the door locked and the window shades pulled down. Uh, yeah. When we're called to be out among people and, and and to be the salt of the earth and to be the light of Christ, and, and, and how can you speak truth to a neighbor if you've never seen them and never met them? And, you that's know, right. maybe that's part of the challenge here, too. I, I often hear people will say, well, my faith is a very private thing. 
Well, certainly the the intimate aspects of your relationship with Christ, I understand that. But, you know, Jesus doesn't tell us, and again, another wonderful biblical illustration, to to hide our light under, you know, underneath the bed or, or, you know, put a basket on top of it. He tells us to put it up on top of the stand and and make it shine as bright as possible. And, you know, if I look at the world around us today, the, the one thing that kind of repeatedly comes to mind, and we know living in the Bay Area, it seems that every day there's news about a carjacking or there is a shooting on the freeway. Growing numbers of people feel as if, gee, I, I'm I'm almost afraid to leave my house now. And we look at all this stuff and then we think to ourselves, my, my, how dark it is. It's so terribly dark. But I, I love the illustration. You know, when we come home in the evening, maybe we've taken our spouse out for dinner. We come back eight, nine o'clock at night. The house is all dark. You know, you can sit around and complain about how dark it is, or you can walk up to the lamp and go turn the switch on. And what really what we're trying to convey is that it's not that we're overwhelmed by darkness. It's that there's a lack of light. So when there's too much darkness, turn on the light. Maybe part of the challenge as we look at the broader issues going on in our culture and society today is, you know, the the enemy can run rampant if you leave the light turned off. But if you turn the light on, uh, things can change. Maybe that's part of the challenge here. Yeah, I, I agree. And look, I mean, I don't pretend to um to have our folks think that it's easy to be a light it's hard Mm -hmm. you know and i i listen to some stories and i i am amazed at just and people's heart for the lost people's heart for the area um, the ways that they very thoughtfully very humbly but very passionately bring uh the gospel into relationships with unbelievers they know um and and you know the thing that I love about that illustration that you shared from Matthew about not having your light um, hide, but rather let your light shine is that the climax to that, all of that at the end of the book of Matthew is we do that with Christ right at our side, right? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you're never alone. I think we can feel like we are though, Craig. Um, And I think even, especially in the Bay area, uh, it can be easy in the swirl of everything just to think, is there anybody out there who's, Who's who's um, who's engaged and committed to 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 the same things that I'm committed to in, in in the gospel and and yet we need to remember as we're called to let our light shine that that Jesus is right there with us He's right there with us and so we don't have anything to fear right um, and His love is for us we don't have to be afraid and all those all those simple truths come back and they give us uh, strength for the task right. And, and strength for the task in what I think is a is a a really needy and really sometimes tough area or region here in the bay. Oh, but uh, what an opportunity too, right? Absolutely, and you know, I, I often kid people and say, you know, you you, you want to be a missionary. 75 to 100 years ago that required learning a new language, getting a passport, you know, getting 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 your your organization to support you, traveling to a far-flung country, living amongst the people for 2 years and then finally maybe being able to do a church plant. Today if yeah. you want to reach the world for Christ and and you happen to live in the greater San Francisco Bay Area, open your front door. Because I'm yep. going to guarantee you, there's going to be somebody across the street or down the block, or that you work with, or or uh, you know run into every day at the bank, the grocery store, wherever that is from another place that has never heard of the gospel. And I think the other thing too is that maybe sometimes we we shortchange the Holy Spirit in all of this. I, I've heard some people that say, you know, uh, Doctor Desdo, I don't have your theological education. If they ask me a question, I won't be ready to answer. I'm not good at scripture memorization, so they allow that sense of fear to prevent them from saying anything. Or under the misconception that the conversation begins by quoting John three sixteen and ends with them making a confession of faith in front of you in ten minutes time. And yeah. it isn't always like that. I mean, I, I think of our own experiences. Now, yes, some were raised in the church. A lot of us were not. And yep. yet God along the way put people in our pathway to share the gospel. For most people, a decision to follow Christ was not an instantaneous experience, but it was part of a long process as the Holy Spirit worked on us and convicted us of sin and, and began to reveal uh, himself to us. And so maybe part of the mistake is that we put so much, um, how should we say, 
so much of a sense of responsibility on ourselves that we're, what we're really doing is leaving the Holy Spirit out of the equation. Do you think that's yeah. that's true? Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. I forget Craig who said that. Um, you know, God is the great the greatest evangelist. <laughs> so, and that's because of the Spirit. And so, um, man, just trusting that the Spirit's at work in the conversations that we have as as weak as we think we are and, and, and we are weak. Right. But, but as sometimes as weak as we, we, we think we are with like, man, Lord, I, I, I could have said this, or I, I should have walked through this, or I should have presented, you know what? It's just required of stewards to be found faithful. First Corinthians four, uh, with the mysteries of Christ, just be faithful and faithfulness can sometimes just be, yeah, you, you are another conversation along the path of many conversations that the spirit's going to use to draw his people to himself. And, and what a joy to be, just be a part of the process. With us today, Dr. Kent Dresdo, Senior Pastor of North Creek Church of Walnut Creek. If maybe you're new to the San Francisco Bay Area and looking for a new church home, we invite you to check out North Creek Church of Walnut Creek. Run through, if, if you would, Pastor, briefly the service times. Yeah, so we have two different services uh, that meet on Sunday mornings at 9 and then at 1045. Um, and so we would invite anybody to attend, uh, the services are open to all. And then we have, um, adult groups that meet at the same time. We call them life stage groups that meet on both those services. <clears throat> and we always make sure that people are invited to those as well. We have all kinds of ministries for families, uh, from the nursery. I just found out we had 42s, 42 year olds in our two year old classroom. We are packed out with kids, but praise the Lord for all the life. And, and we're trying to figure out how to care for them best we can. And, and then, uh, and then just, you know, ministries all the way up with, uh, children's junior high, high school, college. We have a really vibrant and booming singles ministry too. praise the Lord for the, the folks in the church, uh, who are in that place in life. They are powerhouses for ministry in the church and then all the way up to our senior saints as well. So on Sundays, we want to encourage people to join us for the worship service and then also hang around for fellowship too. Um, and, and just join what God is doing here. It's God's work, not ours. We say that all the time. He's leading, we're responding. We say that all the time. And so, uh, praise the Lord for the work going on here. Lots of exciting things happening. Again, check out North Creek Church located at 2303 Ignacio Valley Road in Walnut Creek online at northcreek.org. Pastor Dr. Kent Desno, we sure appreciate your time today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Craig. I really appreciate it. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll pick back up where we left off in verses 13 down to almost verse 20. Really, everyone, the whole chapter kind of belongs together from here, from verse 13 down to the end. We're going to break it up a little bit, though, to, to spend more time in greater detail looking at this, this central passage in the gospel of Matthew. This is the heart of the gospel here by way of what Matthew is writing for. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The passage today and the point of the passage is very straightforward, right? I mean, sometimes you get into a passage, you're like, man, I, I can't tell what the main point of the passage is. Maybe in a, in a long narrative, maybe in a prophetic portion of the Bible, um, you might see several different things that could be the point. Maybe in a poetic passage in the Bible, in like a psalm, you're thinking, is there one point here? What's the main point? Well, today there's no doubt about what the main point is, right? The main point is that Jesus is what? 
the Christ, the son of the living God. The point of the passage is this great confession that Peter makes. Now, just to kind of set the stage for us, we want to make sure that we recognize that Jesus has been engaged in his earthly ministry now for almost two years. And he's wrapping up his Galilean ministry over the last few, well, major paragraphs, maybe chapters. He's been in chapter 15 on a short-term mission trip to the regions that are in the Gentile districts all around Galilee. Now he's coming back to Galilee in verses 1 through 12. And as soon as he gets there, he's, he confronts the Pharisees and the Sadducees and tells everyone to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Remember that? That tendency that they had back then and we have still today to be modern-day Pharisees, to add to the Bible the traditions that we love. That's Pharisaism. It's alive and well today, as we'll see from this passage. But there's also modern-day Sadduceism, which is a tendency to take the Bible and to delete the portions we don't like. They're not relevant for our modern sensibilities. And so there's a liberalizing tendency to delete portions of the Bible we don't like. But you remember, we saw Jesus give us a warning last week in verse 12. Beware of the teaching, the leaven, that spreads quietly, invisibly among the the so-called people of God to drift away from God's word and either add to it or subtract from it. Jesus, after confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees, takes off from the Sea of Galilee, goes 25 miles north. And you see on this map, he goes up to Caesarea Philippi, verse 13. This is not the Sea of Galilee up above. It's the Sea of Galilee down below, the bigger lake. So he's walking 25 miles north to Caesarea Philippi. It's the furthest point north in Israel. It's the furthest place away from Jerusalem where the Sadducees and the Pharisees had come from. And he gets as far away as he can from those guys and that place because he wants to make sure that he tells the disciples and teaches his disciples exactly who he is. If you get who Jesus is wrong, then nothing else in your life matters. Is that true? If you get who Jesus is wrong, then nothing in this church matters. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah, this is the fundamental concern, the eternal concern that Jesus has, that Matthew has for his gospel, that God has for you from his word today. To make this great confession for yourself. The implications of which are going to bleed out now through the rest of the gospel. That's true. But today it's about the confession. And it starts with the great question in verses 13 through 15. The great question, or really questions that Jesus asks. You can see in your Bible there in verse 13. The first question that Jesus asks as soon as he gets to Caesarea Philippi is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? In other words, who do people say that Jesus is? Now, this is not a question for back then and not for today. This is a question for back then and for today. Who do people say that Jesus is today? I mean, it's a relevant question today. You can talk with your neighbors and and you can ask them the question, um, you know, hey, you know, I'm a crazy Christian guy. And so um, guilty as charged. And, And you know, it's because of what I believe about Jesus. If you were to turn the tables and say, can I just ask you, who do you say that Jesus is? What kind of answers do you think you might get back from your neighbors in 21st century modern America? It's interesting. I don't think you get a lot of different answers than what you get right here in first century Judea and Galilee and Israel. I mean, the answers are right there in front of you in verse 14. They say that he's like John the Baptist or that he is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the one that was calling people back to repent into living for God according to God's word. I mean, certainly Jesus' facet of ministry had an expression of that. Other people said that he was like Elijah, the great wonder-working prophet of the Old Testament, 
Remember him? He didn't write any scripture down, but man, did he perform a lot of miracles. And I don't know. I don't know if in the Bay Area today, a lot of people would say, oh yeah, no, Jesus, if you're asking me who he says, he, who I think he is, he's a wonder worker. I don't think a lot of people would say that. But around the world today, if you were to ask people in different places, contexts, cultures, continents, where people are more naturally inclined to believe in the supernatural, they would definitely say this. Jesus was a wonder worker. Yeah, like Elijah. And still others would say Jeremiah, and this one I have to admit is a little like Jeremiah, not Isaiah. Don't you want to pull out like a Nahum or something like that? Why Jeremiah? Well, because some people have been listening to Jesus' teaching and knowing that he was pronouncing judgment on people who would not repent. And that puts him in the mold of Jeremiah. Obvious sins that people refuse to turn away from is a part of who Jesus was preaching to and for. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's very Jeremiah-like. And or some of the other prophets, verse 13. In other words, people were linking Jesus back then to being a great man, being a great teacher. And I don't think it's much different today. If you were to ask people today, they would say, Jesus is a great man. He's a great teacher. Period. Now, I want you to turn back to Matthew 13 for Jesus's assessment of himself, Matthew 13, verse 57. Would he disagree with the answer to that question in Matthew 16, 14? Look at verse 57 of chapter 13. They took offense at him and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So Jesus is acknowledging in this context that he is indeed a prophet. So it's not that Jesus is People are getting who Jesus is wrong, necessarily. It's that they're not getting right enough about him. They're halfway right and so all the way wrong. It's not enough to say. And if you're here in this church this morning and you're visiting, and I talked with someone after the first service who's visiting, if you are here and you're visiting and you're going, no, 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 I get it. I, I get you guys are talking about Jesus and you open up the Bible and you do all that stuff. But I, look, it's pretty obvious that Jesus is a good man, but he's not who you guys say he is. Um, to be part way right about Jesus is to be all the way wrong. And the evidence of that will be at the end of the age when, as Hebrews says, it's appointed for a man once to die and after that, the judgment... That is to say, after you die, you'll stand before Christ and he's going to ask you a question similar to this one. Who do you say that I am? And if what you say at the end of the age, standing before your judges, I thought you were a pretty good guy. I think you're a pretty good teacher. I don't really need you to save me, but, but, I, but yeah, no, I mean, you're, by and large, you're a pretty amazing guy. I just want to encourage you that this question is not just being asked to the disciples, it's being asked to you, and your eternal destiny hangs in the balance with your answer. And the Bible's trying to, and God's trying to, and Jesus is trying to, and the Holy Spirit's trying to get your attention this morning for you to get help on the answer that unlocks the doorway into paradise, into heaven, into eternal life. And, and you know that Jesus wants to ask you this question right now where you sit because he's not content. Jesus is not content with his disciples to just ask, who do people say that I am? Who do other people say that I am? He's pressing you this morning. Who do you say that I am? Now, you don't get the press in the English. You get it in the Greek because the word you is thrown to the front. But you, you, who do you say that I am? This is like a parent, right? Parents do this all the time. You know, addressing people, addressing your kids generally. And then at some point, what do you do? You say, no, 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 no. I'm talking to you about something, right? Instruction or correction or whatever. 
And so Jesus is doing the same thing. In the Greek, it's, but you, who do you say that I am? This is the question that the text is calling you to consider today. God's word wants you to consider this question and walk out the door and think about it. Is this answer that's going to be given by Peter your answer? Or is this just the answer that your parents have given you? If I can just talk to the younger generation for a second, teenagers, young people, it's easy to um, borrow this an- the answer to this question that Jesus is asking you right now from your parents. It's easy to borrow the answer to this question not having made it your own, not having appropriated it by faith, not having owned it for yourself. It's easy to like borrow fragments from your friends or maybe from Jordan or Sammy in youth group. You're just parroting answers back that you've been hearing your whole life. Um, Young people, I want you to know that you are going to stand before Christ by yourself and give an answer for yourself to this question. You're not going to have, well, here's a great one, Kevin Richter. You're not going to have Kevin Richter standing with you when you give an answer and and you totally could lean on him. He'd be great to have with you at the final judgment, but you're not going to have him there. You're not going to have people who can help you, your family, your friends. It's just you and what you have owned by faith is what will bless you with eternal life or condemn you to everlasting judgment. This is the greatest question that could ever be asked of you. Who do you say that Jesus is? And thankfully, God in his kindness doesn't just leave you hanging. Like, hey, you better come up with something good. God doesn't do that. God in his grace and in his mercy gives you the answer. He gives you his truth. He gives you not just the great question, but he gives you the great confession in his word. By the way, this is actually the title of this section very often or this verse. Like the great commission refers to Matthew 28, 18 through 20, even though that word commission is not used in that passage. This passage oftentimes is called the great confession upon which the Great Commission launches. So, we come to the Great Confession. And what you must confess about Jesus, what you must confess about Jesus is found in, verses, found in verse 16 by Peter. Now, I, it seems like Peter is speaking for the disciples. The, the clue on that is verse 15, who do you, plural, say that I am? So Jesus is asking all the disciples, and Peter speaks up. So, We don't know if like Peter looked around like, hey guys, we've talked about this, right? We've heard Jesus teach us on this. So I'm going to go ahead and be the rep here. I don't know if that's what he did. The Bible doesn't say. It could be that he just, in his boldness, he just speaks up and isn't a representation of all of the disciples. We don't know. But we do see what you must confess regarding Jesus. And the first thing that Peter confesses is that he is the Christ, the Christ. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew term is the Messiah. In the Greek New Testament, the word is Christos, Christ. Same term. So this is the first thing that you must confess about Jesus, that he is the Christ. And what's fun is, you know what's fun about this? Is that this is the first time in Matthew that that someone is confessing that Jesus is the Messiah to Jesus' face. Pretty sweet, huh? And the term means the long-awaited anointed one of God. The long-awaited, the long-promised deliverer. I mean, I don't know. You guys watch superhero movies probably like I do. Um, Sometimes they try to mess with you with an anti-hero being the hero or the hero being the anti-hero or whatever. But by large, everybody's waiting for the big deliverance at the end. Well, that's what God's people have been doing all through the Old Testament era. God was making promises, setting the stage with this anointed one, the Messiah, who was to come. And everybody by Jesus' time was anxiously waiting for him. In fact, you get a glimpse of who the Messiah is in a representative way in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10. Hannah's song, and Hannah, sweet Hannah, she'll be so sweet to meet someday, 
In 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, Hannah writes of the Messiah in this way. She says, The Lord will give strength to his king, and then in a poetic parallel, and exalt the horn of his anointed, his Messiah, the Christ. So Hannah is saying in her song that the king is the Messiah who is to come. You got it? Now, in 1 Samuel, that ends up being David. But he's not the capital M Messiah. He's the lower M, case M, Messiah. By the time David arrives, God's giving another promise, saying, David, someone coming from you, 2 Samuel 7, is going to be the one who's going to be my son, and I'm going to be his father. Which means that this king, this Messiah, isn't merely human. He's more than human. And so, (laughs) that's why when you get to the New Testament and you get to Matthew and the the generation around Jesus' time, people were so aching for the Messiah to arrive. But it wasn't that their mm, long-awaited expectation of Christ was misplaced, biblically. It was that they had taken who the Messiah was as the deliverer, as the savior of God's people, and they had turned him into a political savior, a military savior. They had made him, they had been anticipating or expecting some kind of like president general person. And so because everyone had so misinformed or loaded their baggage into the term Messiah, Jesus gives the disciples the instructions in verse 20. Look at verse 20. I don't want you to talk about this with anyone right now. Here's why. Because God, Christ in his kindness, is, is, is telling the disciples, you need to make this confession to follow me, to be followers of me. But you're going to load it with such bad freight that I need to teach you more about what the Messiah has actually come to do. Or how the Messiah is actually coming to deliver you. He's not going to deliver you in the way that you think he's coming to deliver you as some kind of a political military juggernaut. Which is why if you keep reading in Matthew 16, the Christ is going to die. Jesus is going to tie together two massive themes in the Old Testament that a lot of people in, in Judaism at the time were taking apart. And so, so Jesus is going to say, like, I need more time to teach you what I'm coming to do. So until I teach you what it means for me to deliver you, I want you to shut up and keep it quiet because you don't know what you're talking about. Does verse 20 make sense? Okay. So let's come back now to, to verse 16 and 17. Jesus is being confessed by Peter to be the Savior, but Jesus has to teach them all what he means by Savior. And then, second of all, this confession means that you must acknowledge him not just as Savior, with what we'll see him to be, the Savior from your sin, and from the power and the penalty of your sin in death and hell, but you also have to acknowledge him as God. Now, Peter in verse 16 says, not necessarily that you are God. He says that you are what? The son of the living God. The son of God. Oh my goodness, that is such a massively important title in the Old Testament. But it's a a term that's less common than Messiah in the Old Testament. The son of God in the Old Testament title is basically divine sonship language. It's a divine son that's in view. So you get a clue on the fact that he is an eternal divine son in places like Psalm 2, a a messianic psalm. And in Psalm 2, verse 6, God says, you are my son, speaking of the Messiah, today I have begotten you. And the word today is a, is a, and begotten is a indication of an eternal today, an eternal span of time, timeless begottenness, eternal begottenness. John 3, 16 is where the only begotten son language comes from. It comes from Psalm 2. 
You also get a clue about the son of God being a divine son, a son who is God in places like Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where the son of man is seen to reign with God himself, co-equal with God in his dominion and power and glory and honor and riches and blessing. So then who is Peter confessing? Who is Jesus Christ? He is the divine deliverer, the savior. And he is the divine son, God himself. Peter is confessing, and so must you and me, that Jesus is the God of all people and the savior of his people. And nothing less than that confession will save Now, that's what you must confess regarding Jesus, who he is. At the end of the age, when you stand before Christ, this is the great confession. Not just to say, but to live. That's true. We'll get to that next time we are in Matthew 16. But for now, it's about confession. And and Jesus is going to answer Peter back with what you must know from Jesus. So what you must confess about Jesus, verse 16. And then Jesus responds to your confession and says, good, then I want you to know something about about what you just confessed, what Peter just confessed. Because it's apparent in verse 17 that Jesus wants to pass along a blessing. He, He wants to acknowledge that this confession leads to blessing in your life. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, son of John, as it said in the different gospel. Blessed are you. This is, um, you know, as it, maybe sometimes you've heard your parents say to you when you're in trouble, they busted out your middle name. Remember that? Like, it, you know, your middle name never got used by your mom. <laughs> Until you were busted by dad, you know? And so she would, she would usher in the confession of your middle name in full regal display, and then you knew, oh, dad's coming home. My middle name just got used, you know? It's, it's a statement of sobriety in that moment. Well, here is a statement that's filled with sobriety by Christ himself. Blessed are you, full name, Simon Bar-Jonah. Meaning, all of your life is blessed. All of you is blessed, Simon, for that great confession. Um, blessed. Blessed are you. When you hear that language in Matthew, what does your mind go back to? Anybody? First service has got you beat by way of responsiveness. So Beatitudes. Yeah, thank you, Jamie Sue. The Beatitudes. So yes, Matthew 5. All these ways that you can be blessed or blessed. And so here's another Beatitude here. A beatitude on all of who Peter is in his life. Wow. Now, you remember in Matthew 5, we spent two weeks on the nature of what a blessing is, what it means to live a blessed life, and what a curse is, and what it means to live a cursed life. And we saw back then that to be blessed means to live a fruit-bearing, multiplying, filling-the-earth life. Next slide through faith in Jesus Christ, centered on the cross, rejoicing in God's blessings, and trusting in his word. That's what we saw from cover to cover, Genesis to Revelation, what it means to live a blessed life. And, And we summarized it by saying, it seems like what God's word is trying to say is that to live a blessed life is what it means to really live now and forever what it means to really live your life with all of the design that God has poured into you is to live it in this way, which is a blessed life. So back in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus says, blessed are you, it's a statement about who Peter's life or what Peter's life is going to look like. Peter is going to eventually really live 
And by the way, it does seem fair. We said this back in Matthew 5. Until you make this confession, you are not really living either. You're not living for a grand purpose and design that spans the ages, spans every people and tribe and nation and language, spans every socioeconomic class. No, no, you're living your life apart from this great confession. You're living your life very, very small just for yourself. Isn't that small? I mean, isn't this this, this grand design for a blessed life? On the back of this great confession, marvelous to see. But before we like pump out our chest and think it's all about us, like, man, Peter smoked it. Jesus wants to remind us that the blessing that he reserves for the people who make this confession is only given to them on the basis of grace, of grace. Jesus calls this out specifically in verse 17. For flesh and blood, Peter, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter has no room to think that this is his own doing. This is not his own confession. It was given to him as a gift of grace by God the Father himself. And you know what's encouraging about this is? I, I don't know where all of you are at this morning. I could guess that some of you are getting drilled by life. You're, you're worn down, beaten up, and, and you're just kind of on survival mode. I mean, summer vacation should be a time for rejuvenation, but for some of you, you're just like broken down by life. You would summarize life as, is it hard or is it easy? Well, is there a super hard option? Because that's where I'm at. That's where some of you are at today. You know what's encouraging about this passage? You can know for a fact, if you're tempted to think, I am getting so hammered right now, I can't see straight. I can't see which way is up. I can't see how God's at work. I don't see any evidences of grace on display in my life. Well, then stop looking at your circumstances and go back to your confession. Because at your confession, you have a promise given to Peter true but through Peter to you, that your life is indeed blessed and that your life is indeed marked by grace on the back, not of your circumstances, but on the back of your confession that was given to you by the Father's grace. And so you can draw strength. Listen, apart from your circumstances, you can draw strength from the, the truth, the reality that there has been a blessing bestowed on your life because of your confession that has come to you by God's sheer grace. Go back to the beginning. Play the videotape again. And remember that Jesus, or the Father, is the fount of every blessing in your life. So I think there's encouragement here for you, and I hope that's helpful You're totally unable to acknowledge who Jesus is on your own. You're totally unable to live life in light of your confession on your own. Totally true. But I do want to encourage you that God has blessed you and God has given you his grace to live for him today with wherever he has you. Not because of where he has you, but because of where he's brought you out from and where he brought you into when you made your confession of faith so long ago. Okay? Just be encouraged in that. This is what Jesus would want you to know from him. Dr. Kent Dresdo, the senior pastor of North Creek Church of Walnut Creek. This has been the Church of the Week, showcasing churches and pulpit ministries from across the greater San Francisco Bay Area. To nominate your congregation for Church of the Week, please email us the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to your church's website to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. Again, that's the name and address of your pastor and church along with a link to the website and email to churchoftheweek at salemsf.com. While all submissions will be considered, not every submission is guaranteed airtime. Thank you for joining us today, and be sure to tune in again next week at this time for the Church of the Week. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.